Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Chrysanthi Giotis to tell us all about her book titled Borderland, Decolonizing the Words of War, published in 2022 from Oxford University Press. This is a really, really interesting book. It grapples with a bunch of difficult topics, um, challenging in important ways. So first, um, the, a lot of the book focuses on the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which I'm sure quite a lot of people know is, unfortunately, uh, quite a frequent war zone um, or borderland of conflict in interesting ways that the book goes into. Um, but this isn't a history of the DRC, uh, not that that's not important, but this book goes even further into the challenges to think about how we talk about borderlands, how we talk about places of war and conflict, and particularly how we do that in journalism, um, which is often how many people find out about these places in the first place. So this is a book that's important for a number of different academic disciplines. It's important for practical um, aspects of communication like journalism. And um, so I'm very pleased, Chrysanthi, to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Oh, Miranda, thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Before we dive into the book, uh, I would love it if you could maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain how you came to write this. Oh, wow. So that's actually a bit of a tricky answer because in some ways um, I think I started writing this book when I was 16 years old. Um, so, um, so I'm an academic at the University of South Australia. I've uh, been a journalism lecturer uh, here for a year, but before that I was at the Centre for Media Transition in Sydney and I basically started my academic career uh, back in 2012. Before that, I was a practising journalist. And as a practising journalist, I had an entrepreneurial website where I travelled from Cairo to Cape Town by public transport, which was a dream that I had from when I was 16 and picked up the most extraordinary book by Blaine Harden, who was the Washington Post correspondent in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which is called Africa Dispatches from a Fragile Continent. And the reason this book was extraordinary was because it was a mea culpa. One of the things that came through very strongly was how he felt that his profession of journalism hadn't been able to convey 
the dynamism of Africa and, you know, it was the four horses of the apocalypse, the death, destruction, um, disaster, you know, um, that really came through, famine, disease, etc. So um, for me, that was a call to action. I, you know, I knew I was going to be a journalist um, from when I was about eight years old, I think. And so it was a call to action to to be able to report in a different way from especially sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but then when I was there and I was uh, in a refugee camp, which at the time was being not advertised to the world, not, uh, you know, basically the... It was during the Sudan-South Sudan split. And how do you tell something different about refugee camps that became the driving force of my questions um, for this book? Um, and my PhD research, which eventually became this book. Does that answer the question? I'm sorry, it's a very yes. long-winded question. <laughs> no, I think it very much does um, and illuminates, I think, a lot of the threads that we're going to um, pick up and dive into uh, through the course of this and obviously through the course of the book. Um, so it's a great answer to start us off with. Um, and I think that leads kind of nicely to my next question of, the title of the book, in a lot of senses, um, has a key concept, right? Borderland uh, sounds kind of, in some senses, kind of obvious. Well, okay, we know what a borderland is, um, but you make the argument in the book that this isn't just sort of a word of kind of the bit where the borders meet. Uh, this is a much more sort of conceptual word that we should think more about uh, in general and in terms of this project of decolonizing journalism. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you mean by borderland and how we might think about it. So, yeah, thank you so much for the question. I mean, basically for me, the idea of borderland came about because of the understanding which I developed through my research in the Congo that Goma, the capital of um, North Kivu, uh, which is on the border with Rwanda, had really been reconstructed through the ongoing war and the ongoing presence of the United Nations peacekeeping mission there. Um, as a social geography, it was significantly different from the rest of the country and that was important to recognise. So overall, what I came to realise through my research and through putting this into perspective of similar post-colonial states that are in these ongoing conflicts, which often do take place on the borders while other parts of the country sort of gets on with life, is that these social geographies are very much in and of themselves important to understand. And there is an issue here in, in terms of the way that we think about them in journalism where we don't think of them like that. We don't understand that this is a place of dynamism where actually I would argue um, and other anthropologists who use this term, um, or other people, sorry, other academics, um, like the anthropologist Michelle Agier, who also uses this term, um, you know, this is where the future of the world is being written. And so 
you know, firstly, Weaver's nation state is a Western construct which doesn't fully take into account um, the role of imperialism and colonialism in the construction of the nation states. And so in that sense, it's a decolonization. But also for me, it's a mindset shift. It's, a, it's about talking about these places as a place of dynamism and also understanding that here we have a different set of rules operating where we really have, um, yeah, the rules of international governance of people movements in particular. You know, um, the refugee crisis is the biggest outcome of these ongoing conflicts and, uh, you know, whole categories of people are either being caught in situ in refugee camps or else scattered um, while we have less overall deaths in in modern warfare than in the industrial wars, as um, Saskia Sassen and America Aldo call it, of um, the 20th century, we actually now find that there are far more expulsions, people movements are the main outcome of these wars and this is what the term borderland is trying to capture, to capture this new reality, I guess. Hmm. I think those are some very important um, conceptual differences to maybe the too easy kind of assumption of, oh, we know what that means. Okay, cool. Um, So very important intervention uh, just in that concept, uh, which really kind of sets up, I think, one of the, the biggest contributions, I thought at least, of the book, which is your really interesting methodology for writing it, but also the fact that you are explicitly talking about this methodology, not just as something you have done, but thinking through how others could do something similar, um, which was very interesting and cool. So I have a bunch of questions about your methodology. (laughs) Um, But to start with, maybe you could give us sort of an overview of the methods you use and how you developed them. Um, And then I'm sure I'm going to ask you about particular bits of it in more detail as we go. Okay, so I guess the overall, not I guess, the overall uh, methodology that I would that I employ is actually practice-led methodology. So I was extremely fortunate um, in that my university, um, the University of Technology Sydney, allowed me to do a non-traditional PhD, which gave me an amazing amount of latitude um, to pursue uh, practice-led methodology. And so what that means is that every element of the practice which I encountered um, led to the adoption of different methodological frameworks. And so I should explain that actually as part of my methodology, I produced feature articles from the Democratic Republic of Congo from uh, Magunga refugee camp. And so then that sort of leads to this, um, what I do describe as a false bifurcation in the book of words and worlds. Um, And so I've I've made this uh, split, though, so that we can grab onto some methods and and to try and apply some new methods to journalism to move it on. And so in the first part of the book, which is about words, this is really rooted in frame theory. And so 
I apply frame theory in two different ways. In chapter one, I basically uh, do frame analysis uh, where I draw very heavily on post-colonial literature about the tropes of the Africanist discourse. So, you know, we're more familiar with Edward Said's Orientalist discourse, but there is also a very large body of work which describes the Africanist discourse. And um, I look at the way that those tropes actually still manifest in modern-day media frames. And the other thing that this application of frame theory has allowed me to do is to identify from the point of view of practicing journalisms, which trope I feel, or not, which trope through my analysis seems to be doing the most uh, damage to our modern understanding of borderlands. And the trope that I identify is the lacuna trope. So that basically, if we are allowing dark nothingness to reign, if we if we're seeing these spaces as existing in a lacuna, then that actually stops us, stymies journalists and indeed um, other analysts who rely on the words of journalism quite often in their first encounter with these countries and these spaces uh, from understanding the, the modern dynamics of these spaces. Um, so... Then I go further into frame theory uh, through the application of uh, Donald Schoon and Martin Rain's frame reflection theory, which was really developed by them to try and get past intractable policy controversies. And so I adapt this for journalism practice um, through a technique which I developed called the frame reflection interview. And essentially what frame reflection tries to do is to try and discover the underlying metaphors of thought which stop people from reaching an understanding about an issue. Uh, In the frame reflection interview, what I'm doing is putting examples of journalism to former refugees um, who were now living in Sydney but who had come from the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo and asking them to talk through uh, the journalism with me so that I could try and discover um, yeah, their understanding of the world through frame reflection, through reflecting on the different frameworks in which we see the world. Um, and so that's sort of words, but then there's worlds. And in worlds I... Um, applied David Harvey's Matrix of Space and Time. And I do this because when I was actually in Goma, I was uh, I needed a way to understand what the social geography was doing to the journalism practice. Um, and so what I argue is that the social geography of post-colonial conflict zones is highly particular um, and needs to be understood in more depth so that journalists are actually being reflective in understanding which stories they're being led towards, I suppose. Um, 
and I also uh, applied I applied that to my own practice. Um, so I put myself in David Harvey's matrix and looked at the way that the social geography had influenced me. Um, uh, yeah, so I so in the book I try to show journalists how they can apply a frame reflection interview to their own work and how they can apply the matrix to their own work and their own understanding of themselves as a foreign correspondent in these borderlands and what their role could be. And we're going to get more into some of those, I think, as we go on, uh, because it's fascinating. Um, so, yeah, that answer's kind of given me a bunch of different things that I'm now going to ask you more about. Um, so I suppose in no particular order, um, can you tell us a bit about, uh, I think one of the arguments you're making is that we might think of uh, these spaces, especially in Africa, as being to some degree, post-colonial. Um, Belgium no longer at least officially owns the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Whether the DRC is fully post-colonial is perhaps a separate question. Um, but you make an argument that there's actually a much stronger line between colonial practices of journalism or reporting even um, and how foreign correspondents today might still, um, whether or not they realize it, and in fact, I think in a lot of cases, they probably don't, are still influenced by a lot of these colonial discourses. So I was wondering if you could maybe illuminate for us some of these ways, some of these legacies of colonial colonial discourse, especially Africanist discourse, that are still being used, again, whether or not they're intentionally being used, by foreign correspondents today? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest example that I can give of this is the heart of darkness. So although, uh, you know, the, the book The Heart of Darkness was written as a uh, as a critique of of the Belgian colonialism in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it does actually reinforce many of the tropes of colonialism in that you know, there are no African-speaking voices and the late, great Chinua Achebe does a wonderful job of explaining exactly um, how, you know, Conrad's work really reinforces some of our, the comfortable stereotypes of Africa, um, even as he's trying to critique colonialism. And the the term heart of darkness still appears. It still appears in in headlines, in uh, in copy of journalists, um, and this does evoke those those images, these, those images that are, are very strong, even though they are not images with specificity. There's this very strong, uh, how can I describe it, um, feeling of understanding Africa because there are such strong images um, associated with sub-Saharan Africa. But that's not understanding. That's a famili- familiarity with a a writing trope. It's not actually an understanding of the country as it exists in the real world today. So um, you know, the heart of darkness is is a really obvious example. But we also see in, in sub-Saharan Africa, so often 
where the journalist's journey to get to a place becomes the main drama of the story. So actually, you know, we have a white hero actually replacing the the, the people who are supposed to be the subject of the story. Um, in refugee camps, again, you, you hardly ever have refugees speaking for themselves. Um, you have a white angel of mercy and all these things relate directly to to the white man's burden trope, which has, you know, been so well identified and articulated, especially by Easterly in um, development studies, um, but which we really have never even thought about in journalism. And obviously it's important in and of itself to identify uh, the tropes and see how they come up. And I think even just from those two examples, listeners probably can think of quite a few art. Uh, news articles that they might have read that go, oh, wait, hang on, that is what that one's doing. Um, But you don't just stop at identifying them. You also talk about tools that can be used not just by academics, but actually by journalists to help identify those legacies, um, perhaps in their own work or as they're preparing to write something. So could you tell us more about kind of these tools and how you can use them? I know you have some examples of this in the book. Yeah, so I guess one of the tools is actually understanding the links between the modern frames and the tropes. And so I actually have developed a typology uh, which is available, which is in the book. And that is something that can be done on a writing level. So when you're actually writing, there is the possibility there of identifying the the tropes that you are uh, you are calling into mind, and I have to say, actually, um, there was a wonderful point in my research where, and this is part of my research, you know, the really honest uh, explanation of mistakes, where I had I had fallen into the trope of identifying um, the the rebels in. Uh, and the warlords in the Virunga National Park with the the gorillas. You know, I made this wordplay between gorillas and gorillas, and I had taken it out of my copy, and an editor had put it back in. And I had to explain to them that actually, you know, this is a really bad practice and something that journalists are criticised for, and they did take it out of the copy in the end. And, you know, for me, this was a great example of affirmative action that can be taken in this respect. Um, but then there's also the understanding that comes through the frame reflection interviews. And so this is actually, go as I mentioned before, going to uh, former refugees and asking them to comment on journalism and what that brings out is actually a whole new source of, um, I suppose, discomfort in that you realise that uh, you're looking at the same things and seeing completely different things. So a good example, um, or not seeing completely different things, but not noticing things that you perhaps should notice. Uh, So an example that I can think of is the 
at the time when I was doing the frame reflection interviews, the news had a lot of images of the refugee camps being set up in Turkey for Syrian refugees. And my interviewees were pointing out the differences in the quality of the campsites uh, compared to the quality of the campsites in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And they were saying, well, this is a world injustice. Shouldn't refugee mean the same thing everywhere? And I had been looking at exactly the same images and never seen that. So there is this element that comes out in the frame reflection interviews where a lot of what academics talk about, so pretty much everything that came up in my research up to, uh, up to that point in my literature review of the of the Africanist discourse, my interviewees brought up very simply, you know, in these 45-minute interviews uh, just through their life. You know, people live these realities, these inequalities, and they are, they understand them. You know, we, we discuss them in, in academic terms as tropes and frames, but they actually live it and they can point out so many things. Um, and this is something which I think, you know, is very useful in terms of journalism, but I can see it being applied in many other, in many other areas like international development. Uh, because you're not always going to have the opportunity which academics have. And so I feel like the frame reflection interview is a really great shortcut to a lot of knowledge. Um, and the other thing that the frame reflection interviews did was to bring up completely new terms for me, new understandings of the way that uh, the war can be understood. So, for example, one of my interviewees who I've uh, given the pseudonym of Aristotle because I just felt I learnt so much from him. Um, he introduced the term blasting war to me. So at one point he says, you know, you have to be careful uh, because right now there is war but there's not blasting war and you have to be careful that the situation doesn't change. And so that really helped reinforce for me the ongoing nature of this conflict, um, the fact that there is this distinction between war and blasting war. Um, and so when, when I was in the Congo and one of my interviewees there, so this is an interviewee for publication, um, not an interviewee for, for research. So one of the interviewees, um, a woman who was, uh, the head of a of a very impressive NGO, uh, an NGO made up of other. So it was an umbrella NGO made up of of um, many scores of of local NGOs. Um, so she described herself as a war victim um, because she had been shot during a period of lawlessness after. Uh, the takeover of Goma by M23, which was a very short takeover. So, um, and she had been shot while she was in her small store. Um, you know, uh, so she, it was a robbery. Like my initial understanding of it would be a, a robbery, but she described herself as a war victim. And I was able to integrate that understanding only through 
thinking about this term blasting war and thinking about the fact that actually the ongoing effects of the war are part of the victimhood of war. You know, this is why she's describing herself as a war victim. She understands that these, um, yeah, that the, the war has these ongoing effects. So I think those are some really fascinating um, kind of examples and, and really show how these tools can really um, impact understanding, which is obviously incredibly important. And I was wondering if we could maybe continue that a little bit further and talk um, maybe a bit more about kind of what happened when you went to do some of this reporting with these new lenses, with these new frames. Um, how did you find that integrated into your practice? How did that impact um, the questions you were asking, the stories you were telling? Yeah, so um, in some respects, it was a wonderful integration. In other respects, um, it was very difficult. So initially, the especially trying to practice frame reflection on a line-by-line -line basis. So when I was trying to write up the stories, um, I found it a very slow process and I didn't feel like this was something that I could introduce to the journalism profession. Um, however, on my second attempt, uh, I was really able to to focus in on, on on looking at an underlying metaphor, which is part of the frame reflection methodology, and by doing that, I was able to um, yeah integrate the quotes that I had um, into the story much more much more effectively in terms of bringing out the the reality of this um, this ongoing conflict. Um, one of the other things that I did was to actually send my first version to different in, to different research participants uh, for feedback, and so I found that in some respects that feedback was fantastic because they said that they, you know, they didn't feel victimhood, they didn't feel chaos, they didn't feel any of the negative things that uh, I was trying to avoid. But on the other hand, you know, I knew that it had just taken way too long to write. And so the the experiment was um, was something that kept was something that improved um, the second time around. And I should also say that since uh, my initial research in the Congo, I have actually worked with practicing journalists, so um, with a journalist at the Australian Financial Review and with journalists at the ABC, so the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, which is our version of the BBC here in Australia, um, introducing frame reflection interviews to their reporting, looking at, at um, so looking at their reporting areas and it's worked really well in terms of um, them developing new story ideas. And so I do think that this method can be integrated into practice uh, because it is a fairly simple method of an interview. It's just uh, an interview that is structured in a different way. And also the fact that it's not for publication. Like the fact that you're actually, as a journalist, going to people uh, saying, I want to learn from you, I want to actually 
be able to become a better journalist by talking to you, it really changes the dynamic um, and it's a great method for actually uh, humbling journalists, to be honest. Um, and that then allows them to, to think about, to think outside the box in terms of developing new frames. One example from the book that really uh, kind of brought exactly that point home to me as a reader um, was when you talked about how you invited people for the frame reflection interviews. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was a, a relatively broad call, right? People who were currently in Australia who uh, were from the DRC sort of writ large. Um, and you talked about how it was because you're going to go to Goma. And you then mentioned that the people who actually volunteered for it were all like, well, actually, I volunteered because I am from that area. And I know other people who saw your call and were interested, but then were like, well, actually, I'm not from Goma. I'm not even from that bit of the DRC. So, you know, what? I'm not the most I'm not the most relevant person um, to go participate in this. And that to me was such an example of essentially agency and that power dynamic being very different than um, what we might usually see from kind of interviewing people from a, for a story uh, that that alone kind of even before you talk to them just people self-selecting by sort of making their own analysis about what is useful information for this kind of thing um, I thought was a really powerful example. Yeah thank you so much for bringing that up actually yeah that is exactly um, a perfect example of it and that was also where I started to think about the fact that something different is going on here, you know, that Goma really has its own social geography and um, that has to be respected and, and understood um, by journalists. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, like that self-selection that took part. So I initially just said, you know, DRC, and when they fi found out that I was only going to Goma, that's when they were like, no, 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 you know, I'm not appropriate. And this was even people who were from Bukavu, which is not that far away at all just in the next state. Hmm. And I think um, it's a question, you, you make the point of respect, and I think that's obviously a huge part of it, but there's also simply a question of um, comprehension, right? If you, if, if uh, we ignore this, the specifics of a particular place, the social geography of a particular place, then there's just loads we're going to miss. There's just loads we're just not going to understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's exactly why... I do want to introduce this concept of borderland um, and because it is dynamic and fluid and because it does speak to, I suppose, borders of, of in terms of who's allowed into that understanding and who's not and who's allowed into certain parts of the city and who's allowed not into certain parts of the city and um, how those elements of the geography interact in really uh, autocratic ways and really exclusionary ways um, and journalists do have an access all areas pass and we should be using that and if we're not understanding the borders that exist inside these borderlands and the way that the geography is tunneling different uh, realities then we're not going to actually use our access all areas pass. So this is actually what I'd like to ask you about next, right? This idea of space-time um, and different places, even if they might literally be in the same place. Um, and given this all-access pass kind of in theory, 
but space time in practice. Um, how can you talk about kind of how this impacts what stories are told, how stories are told when you're in these areas of complex space time? Yeah, so this is really uh, something that comes out for me when I'm thinking about the way that casual conversations and the networks of people that you meet can influence the types of stories that are told. So, uh, you know, for example, the issue of uh, conflict minerals. So if you're interacting with with people in the international community who are really focused on international responses to conflict minerals, then it is highly likely that you are not going to understand how conflict minerals interact with the local economy. And, you know, this is exactly what we saw with the way in which, uh, you know, conflict minerals attempted to be uh, monitored by the Dodd-Frank Act. And so we do have a situation where the journalists were going in and reporting on conflict minerals, but essentially getting Western analysis. Um, and this is because, not, not only because, but one of the things that the social geography does is tunnel you into that analysis. Um, and you are actually seeing the world through uh, the lens of of people who are existing in this aid land or in this peace land, which has, you know, been really well described by other scholars. What I'm attempting to do here is to show how that then can interact with, for example, the lacuna trope. So if you're not actually looking to see what's happening on the ground locally, then you are going to be tunneled into this space. Um, another example that I give in the book is this idea of NGO speak. So I was warned about NGO speak by um, a very good local journalist and basically he said to me that, you know, you have to be careful when people are talking to you because um, they will see you as a white person, as a Muzungu in that part of East Africa. And so you are going to encounter a, you know, a particular way of speaking. And this was also said to me by the interviewees in Australia, you know, that people would not be able to be completely open with you because of their concerns as refugees in the camp um, and the fact that what they say um, could be seen by the camp officials, um, which is another thing that we don't think about or haven't thought about enough um, in this global world of media that, you know, you might be producing your report with your Western audience or Australian audience or to be more specific in mind, but there's no guarantee that that report isn't going to be seen by the camp officials and that people who are in that report might get in trouble. Um, there's also the knowledge which the, the, the actual way that the space is structured creates, um, that this is an economy, you know, and that there are a whole lot of 
foreigners who are benefiting from this war economy, as there are a whole lot of locals who are benefiting from this war economy. And so in the locals' interactions with you, there is a high likelihood that they are going to be looking to benefit from the interaction um, in a very NGO transactional frame. And and to and in that sense it's not going to be the interview that you would normally associate with a person on the street interview, but rather it's going to be an interview that is structured around a transactional relationship. And so being aware that that is the space that you occupy, that you are not, you know, this noble fourth estate um, as we're taught in journalism schools as I teach my students, um, being aware that you are in this different space because the thing about Harvey's uh, space-time matrix is it's also about how others see you, you know, because it's about representations of space. And I think it's so important in journalism, in these, especially in these situations, to think about how others see us and to be able to act with that knowledge so that we can do better journalism. And that means actually more complex journalism. That means um, finding a way to talk about this this war economy and how the war economy um, is enmeshed with with international assistance. Absolutely. Um, and I think that those are some really important points that build on, as you said, stuff that we kind of might know about in other fields, right? Aid land, peace land. But we don't necessarily think about the overlap with journalism, um, even though that overlap is very obviously there, especially to people on the ground who kind of go, okay, well, you're a foreigner who's not from here, who's asking me questions about my experience. Does it matter to me whether you're a journalist or an NGO worker? Unclear. And yet, if we think that those distinctions are really clear um, and they aren't, like that's important information to be aware of. Um, yeah. And I was Absolutely. wondering if maybe you could uh, give us, I guess, there, I think there are probably going to be some people who understand in principle what you mean by sort of uh, this discourse where people are kind of prepared to give a particular kind of story or certain sorts of information, but not others. Um, but that might ne not necessarily be clear what that actually sounds like in practice or what that could mean in an example. So I was wondering if you could perhaps illustrate that, like what what sorts of things might a journalist expect to hear, but then because of NGO speak, hear something different? Or how, how might those things overlap from a journalist perspective who's maybe not sufficiently aware of the aid land, peace land context? Yeah, so I mean, the biggest thing that uh, I can think of in terms of the reporting at the time was the fact that I would be asking people about their plans for the future. And so much of that was centered around actually developing some sort of project that might be funded by an NGO. And, you know, how much of that was actually just testing the waters. Um, this also is very similar to research done by sociologists who found that um, when asked what they mostly needed, um, 
people in in villages that had been uh, badly affected by the war would describe a NGO project that they had missed out on. So really there's this sense of this is what is possible. Um, this is what I might get out of this interview. Um, and so, yeah, that... But there's also, like, NGO speak which manifests itself physically. So you see um, a, a victimhood, victimhood enacted because people understand that this is why you're there. Um, and especially in terms of that international development economy, you have people's uh, poverty, people's war victimhood actually driving that economy. So you will see different physical body language when they're being interviewed, when they're being photographed. It's it's performative and it makes complete sense. Uh, but that isn't necessarily what is going to uh, create the best journalism. Uh, for me, the the best journalism would actually be global journalism, so where you could actually get uh, to a point where you can explain how these international structures are impacting on people's everyday decisions about where they're going to focus their energies. And there's also the issue of, of distrust, um, which is really, really important. Um, including, you know, inequality and how that inequality manifests itself so blatantly in these borderlands. Some very good points and conveniently for me uh, leads into my next question without it sounding like a tangent. So I appreciate that as well. Um, one of the things I really liked about the book was that you uh, don't just kind of as the question we've just discussed sort of hints at, uh, you don't think about foreign correspondent journalists sort of in a vacuum, right? Of it's just them by themselves doing a thing. We've already talked about kind of this interaction with the worlds of NGOs and aid land and peace land, um, influencing all sorts of things about their practice. And you talk about um, another key sort of influence and component of this work, which is of course the role of the journalistic fixer. Um, and anyone who knows anything about foreign correspondents will be like, well, yeah, they're really important. But they're not necessarily super visible beyond that community. And this is something I was pleased that you talk about in the book um, as part of this idea of thinking about how we can decolonize uh, this part of journalism. So I was wondering if you can sort of walk us through what, what can be improved with this particular piece of the journalistic process, with this key role in the relationship? How can we decolonize the journalistic fixer? Yeah, so this is something that I really couldn't not talk about when talking about decolonizing journalism. And I am actually very proud of my academic peers in journalism to say that this is an area that has been given a lot of attention in recent years and, and huge shout out to Colleen Murrell, especially um, for her work and, and Lindsay Palmer more recently. Um, there's just incredible work being done in this space, in this acknowledgement um, that this is a really uh, colonial structure that we have inherited and kept going. So 
in my research, what I found is that none of the fixes that I interviewed, and it was a small sample, um, but it was pretty much all the most important fixes in GOMA, um, they did not think of their relationship with the journalist as a partnership. And for me, this is quite crucial. Um, there is this element of disrespect in not seeing it as a partnership. There is an element of invisibility, which again, which you highlighted, um, which is actually complicated because in some cases it is it is protective and the fixer's choice to be invisible. Um, however, in most cases that invisibility is about maintaining this hero stereotype, um, this trope, which I talked about earlier. Um, and so that's really problematic. Um, what feeds into this also is that actually in most cases, Fixers are at much more risk than foreign correspondents. Again, this changes, you know, um, war zones are dynamic. Um, this does change from place to place and at different times. Um, however, when you have these journalists being seen as the sort of being seen as these heroes, which, you know, it's the only way to describe it, this hero stereotype of going into this dangerous place to do this job and it's not recognised that actually they're reliant on fixers who are in extremely dangerous situations uh, and who are left behind and often suffer as a result of the journalism that has been produced that's extremely problematic. Um, we should be telling the stories of fixer, fixer danger um, far more frequently than we do because that is also part of illuminating the dynamism of borderlands um, because people aren't just sitting there as helpless victims. They are actually working, um, striving with international partners to try and make their their worlds better worlds um and so yeah part, the invisibility is part of it the acknowledging the danger is part of it um pay is a huge part of it because it, pay scales are one of the ways in which fixes knowledge is devalued um this is not just a problem for journalism, but across the world of aid land, peace land, you know, the differing pay scales for locals and internationals is one of the ways in which local knowledge is not given the value that it should be given. And so then what we have is story frames and story ideas which are set before the journalist even leaves the country, before they've even had a conversation with the fixer and they tell the fixer what they want and the fixer delivers what they want because they don't see it as a partnership because they're not given to see it as a partnership. And the journalist also is under a lot of time pressure and a lot of economic pressure. Um, but I think that if, 
if the knowledge of local journalists was valued the way that it should, that would help alleviate some of the time and economic pressure. Like there is a principle at stake here, which um, which is the basic principle of journalism, which is what is the actual truth of the story. And this isn't going to, the truth is not going to come out unless we actually work with locals in partnership to understand the situation as it is right now, not as it was last reported by the last time someone from my organisation or last time an award-winning documentary came out of this place. Absolutely. Um, And I think those are a number of the pieces that are important, right? It's not just the principle, though that's key. It's also the pay aspect and the time aspect. And I think that was one of the things that comes through is that throughout this book, the the problems and to some extent the solutions are um, both kind of conceptual or theoretical, but also very practical and that they compound each other. It's not one or the other. And we can't just think about moving forward through one mechanism um, or the other. It's kind of thinking about how all these things uh, come together, which of course leads me to the very simple question to ask, but probably not to answer. Um, You've given us throughout this a bunch of different tools, ways for improvement, um, some wonderful uh, suggestions of ways this is already being implemented to improve things. Um, So kind of big picture question, how can and should journalism move forward? Oh, yeah, this is the big question that I was sort of... uh, um, Yes, this is the big question, isn't it? Um, For me, I think that there is this wonderful awareness in young people which is part of the anti-racism that is coming through Um, and, you know, has really been ignited by the Black Lives Matter movement. And so for some, in some respects, awareness is there. I think that what is really needs to be focused on is practices. And so for me, the next step um, and what I would, I think that journalists have to work on is illuminating the realities of borderlands and in particular the way in which they are both global and local at the same time so that these local wars are part of these global systems you know these global networks of of terrorists these global networks of um of discourses about us and them. Um, You know, if you think about the way in which uh, we have even the fact that, you know, the war in Crimea was allowed to to go on and then this has led to the larger war in the Ukraine, which we see now, these, these borderlands are not being discussed enough. You know, they're just the the fact that we are in these unending wars, which Duffield identified so long ago, and it's just not part of our reality, not part of our understanding. You know, um, whenever I give the statistic that every two seconds a person is displaced, people just don't believe it. 
And so for me, journalism needs to move forward by actually putting resources into this reportage. And, you know, I know that that's such a big ask um, when journalism is struggling everywhere for resources. But I just don't see that I just don't see how we can't. It, yeah. I mean, I think anyone reading the book will go, yeah, okay, there is work to be done. And here are at least some ways to begin um, that work, which is so important. Uh, which leads me nicely onto my final question, and hopefully an easier one to answer than my penultimate question. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the book is obviously now out. Readers, uh, listeners can read it. Um, is there anything you are currently working on or looking to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's related to this, that you'd like to make our listeners aware of? Um, yeah, so my next challenge is to try and develop some actually specific global frames of reporting. So those global local frames um, to try and replace some of the frames that we do currently use. And um, I am hopefully going to be doing some more reportage, some more practice-led research. Uh, particularly, um, I'm, I'm actually looking to go to... Um, long-running refugee zones instead of war zones this time, so sort of areas like Lesbos in Greece um, and also um, places in Southeast Asia, um, which is quite, which is more relevant for Australia. Um, and, yeah, uh, some more practice-led research that will hopefully lead to another book <laughs> at some point. Wonderful. Well, whenever that becomes a book, uh, let us know and we'll have you back to tell us all about it. But while you are off practicing uh, that research, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Borderland, Decolonizing the Words of War, um, published by Oxford University Press. Chrysanthi Singh, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Miranda, thank you so, so much for having me. This has been uh, wonderful. Thank you.